The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And to help us do that today, we have a wonderful author, food activist, and community organizer, Mark Winnie. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Melinda. You were, for over 20 years, the executive director of the Hartford Food System in Connecticut, and you have recently moved to the sunny state of New Mexico. You speak all over the country. But I want to go back, and before we talk about your progression through the food system movement, I want to talk about how you got there. And your first book, which is, I I just want to tell our listeners, these books are so captivating and so difficult to put down. Your first book, Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty, is mesmerizing. And you start out, I always read dedications. You dedicate this book to your parents who taught you to care. You also dedicated it to your English teachers, which I love, and to your children who allowed you to teach them. And I want to know the secret that your parents had. How did they teach you to care? <laughs> it's not necessarily a, a beautiful story, but it's uh, part of it, unfortunately, was like a lot of uh, people growing up in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, I was subjected to some rather substandard cuisine, the processed food that was becoming uh, au courant, you might say, and uh, seemed to have taken on a, the sheen of, of something special and wonderful and that was going to lead us into an era of, 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 you know, of convenient forms of nutrition being shoved down our throats and our mothers would be freed from the kitchen. That was kind of the environment that I was raised in. And I think what my parents taught me, perhaps more than how to care about food, was to care about what you believe in and to fight for it, regardless of what it is. So when I made some difficult choices as a young person, particularly when I was in college, they, rather than castigate me for those choices, they supported me wholeheartedly and really was that, that kind of teaching that I found to be uh, most inspirational. Mm. That's that's a wonderful lesson for all parents. The second page of your book, you have a poem from Langston Hughes, and it, it says, I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despite the dream. And I would love to know from your perspective what you think happened to the American dream. How is it that we have so many hungry Americans? Well, we forget about hungry Americans. We forget about poor Americans. It's not in the not-too-distant past. We forgot about black Americans and uh, Hispanic Americans and even, uh, unfortunately, female Americans. And that is the has been the story of social change in, uh, in America, realizing that we have forgotten very large segments of our population. And I, I think with respect to food, it's maybe not always a question of us being so selfish or uh, so self-centered that we are just going to uh, ignore the rest of the world or the 
part of the world that doesn't have what we have, but it's the fact that we have become um, absorbed in a, a tremendous amount of wonderful food. I write, I write about the food movement because I've been a part of it uh, from the very beginning and have you know, enjoyed the growth in organic food and local food and uh, you know, great varieties of, of ethnic food. And that has become a part of my lifestyle as it has become a part of many other people's lifestyles. And what my concern was, given that I had worked in that field for so long in the area of community food activism, was that we were forgetting about all those people who were hungry and food insecure and growing more obese at the same time, and that we had two food systems evolving, one for the affluent, well-educated, a group that I often refer to as light, white, and bright, and another group that was lower income, often people of color as well, uh, who were shopping at you know, the, the kind of the lowest end possible uh, food stores or going to the food bank and uh, living on food stamps. That was uh, two Americas, two Americas expressed through the way they dealt with food, and I found that really unfortunate. So it was the fact that you know we, you know, we often have that progress for one group, at the same time another group is left behind. I wanted to make sure that people understood about that group that was left behind and that we had a responsibility to address those needs as well. You talk about the real issue here being poverty and the need to get at the root causes. What do you see at the heart of poverty? Well, the heart of poverty is uh, well. It's a, not an easy subject to uh, address in a, a minute or two, but right. clearly it's a lack of money. Uh, it's a lack of opportunity. Uh, in many cases, it's uh, social economic barriers uh, that have been imposed that basically oppress people, exploitation. You know, people who, for whom you know the American dream is is always going to be a dream, and it'll never be realized. What I think about, however, with respect to to food again, is that we started to see the evolution of food relief and hunger relief as being the solution and the be-all and end-all to poverty, uh, when in fact hunger was and food insecurity were nothing more than you know, the tip of the iceberg. They were the you know the, the symptom of poverty, and we Americans rallying around our, our good intentions to try to solve the problem of hunger and food insecurity only addressed that. We only addressed the symptoms and we forgot about the poverty. And we became so enamored with our programs like food banks and expansion of food stamps and um, a number of, I mean, we have now 15 separate uh, USDA you know, publicly supported food assistance programs from WIC and food stamps and school meals and so forth, that we neglected the root causes of the symptom that we were trying to address. And I think that we, that we it's really, in effect, derailed our efforts to be able to address poverty at all. And I think it's something in the American way, uh, unfortunately, that says, I'm going to help somebody who's hungry. I'm not going to let somebody starve to death. But when it comes to poverty and when it comes to their their foundation of their problem, uh, I'm not going to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. They need to take responsibility for that. 
And you can see that, I think, in the way we kind of play out our, our social welfare system and the way that we uh, don't invest in our our, uh, our economy in this country so that we can really expand job opportunities and the way we don't invest in public education so that people can develop the skills they need to be competitive uh, people in the workforce. Yeah, I think there's a real danger in institutionalizing hunger. You know, all of a sudden you've got people with vested interests in keeping people poor because people are profiting from them. Well, you know, I'm, I've been uh, I've been criticized by food bank food banking world, uh, which is a big world, and I, but I have the the uh, I have the perspective of seeing the beginning, the very beginning of food banking in America, uh, in the 19, late 1970s. I was very much involved in developing a food bank in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, which has become one of the largest food banks in uh, the Northeast, and at that time when hunger was first becoming apparent to the larger population, there were no food banks. There were no food pantries at all. There was no, no place. I will say that there were a handful of places uh, in our uh, metro uh, community to get uh, emergency food or free food. And these were usually places that had been around a long time, like the Salvation Army and some old settlement houses and a couple of churches. Today, there are over 200, over 200 food banks in America in the late 1970s, there were zero. There are over 60,000 uh, food pantries today in the United States. In my one community at that time, there were only four or five. Now in that, in that same community, there's about 300. Now, I have to ask the question, what happened over the last 30 years to bring about that kind of response to a really significant problem, namely hunger, and food insecurity. Exactly. Uh, and what is it that, and do we actually feel like we have accomplished something? Yes, we have managed to keep a whole lot of people from going hungry. That's We have accomplished that. But we still continue to sort of you know feed the beast in the sense that we haven't been able to get to the bottom of the problem. In fact, we don't even try to get to the bottom of the problem. Mark, on the one hand, we've got these these parallel food systems. We've got reason for great concern about the industrialized food system. And yet, on the other hand, we've got great hope because we see many more farmers markets springing up and more young people becoming enthused about the food system and working for real change. Do you see one side winning? Um, in the sense of one type of food system? Yes. Well, I think in my second book, uh, Food Rebels, Gorilla Gardeners, and Smart Cooking Mamas, yes. look at this, so how this, this conflict, you might say, is playing out between you know, the large dominant food system where most of us get our food, and I call it the industrial food system, and the food system that many of us are aspiring to, which is, I call, simply the alternative food system. Now, I think the you know, tendency is, from again, like maybe the tendency was in my description of the gap and closing the food gap, our tendency is if we shop at a farmer's market, we sort of automatically think that everybody shops at the farmer's market. Or if we have a nice garden, everybody is gardening. So we're thinking, well, geez, you know, most of our food is coming from, you know, within 100 miles or it's sustainably produced. Well, the facts don't bear that out, unfortunately. On a good day, we're looking at about 
10% of our food coming from sources that are what we might sort of loosely categorize as good food sources. I mean, they're, they're, they're local, they're, they're organic or sustainably produced. They're, uh, you know, the, the producers are paying attention to what they're paying their workers and the system itself has, respects fair trade. It's providing living wages to those who are making a living within the food system. And I'm, I think that 10% is uh, maybe a high number. I think it's probably on a good day going downhill with the wind to our back kind mm-hmm. of number. So, so who's winning? Well, in that respect, you could say the industrial food system. Who's growing faster? Well, it's probably the alternative food system. But are we going to catch up before it's too late, before the resources run out, before uh, more and more people show up on the planet and we're not able to feed them all? The jury is still out, and I think that we need to pay attention to the the tension that exists between the industrial food system and the alternative food system. And I do think that uh, I've been I've been perplexed. It's probably the nice way to put it about the way that the industrial food system has been attacking those who are um, looking for a, a, a different way or trying to move us in a and move our food system in a different direction one that really respects the health of the individual, the health of the environment, and the, uh, and the health of communities. And I, this, is, this is what I, this tension is what I'm, I'm very concerned about because it is going to be, it sort of defines the battle lines. And unfortunately, it is a bit of a battle. And it's one that we have to pay attention to uh, how it's being fought. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Mark Winnie. He is a community organizer, food activist, and author of two terrific books. The first is, uh, really describes his work with trying to close the food gap, resetting the table in the land of plenty. And the second is Food Rebels, Guerrilla Gardeners, and Smart Cooking Mamas, Fighting Back in an Age of Industrial Agriculture. You speak about how when you go to book signings, People are really attracted to the first part of the title of this book, Food Rebels, Guerrilla Gardeners, and Smart Cooking Mamas. That gets everybody's interest piqued. It's a sexy title. But the second part is a little bit more uh, demanding of us, and it says, Fighting Back in an Age of Industrial Agriculture. And the question is, how do we fight back effectively? Well, it's... Yeah, why I say the first part of the title is uh, more interesting to most people is that is because they like stories about people who are doing something. They they like the kind of the real life action heroes in our food system, and I I do too. And that's why I tell their stories. That's why I I love being out there and interviewing people and and uh, sharing their work because we do learn from that. But I think that it's like anything in life. I think that any action that's not informed by some thought and some analysis some understanding of the context that we're working in, it's risky to proceed without that kind of analysis. So fighting back in the age of industrial agriculture helps us, I think, to understand the battlefield a little bit better. It kind of gives us a roadmap, and it kind of gives us a sense of what's at stake. For me and for many people that I know, what's at stake is not just the food that's on our plate, not just what we're eating, part of our three meals a day, but it's also uh, our democracy, our ability to make decisions about the larger food system, about the food that is, how it's being produced and where it's being produced. And I feel that too much of the the terms of the debate 
right now are being uh, set by the uh, industrial food system, uh, really kind of controlling the process. And I think there's a, a tremendous risk to us in allowing something as dominant as the industrial food system with the kind of inherent harm that it does, uh, that we know it does, to let it go on unchallenged. And so the stories of the, you know, my gorilla gardeners and my smart cooking mamas are about people who have decided that they want to fight back in some way. They may not actually think that they're fighting back against the industrial food system, but they know they're fighting for something really important in their lives, in their families' lives, and in their communities' lives, that they need to take a stand in some way, whether they're going to convert an old vacant lot into a community garden, or they're going to learn how, for the first time in their life, as a woman, let's say, in their 20s or 30s with several children, how to cook, how to cook healthy food. And people who are learning to use their voice to speak up in our public policy arenas, such as our city council or our state legislature or even the halls of Congress. So that's how I, I look at the you know, the heroes uh, who are taking a stand in their own communities, but the ways that they need to understand the problem will help them, I think, take a stand better than they would otherwise. Let's talk about one or two of the people you've interviewed in the book, A Smart Cook and Mama. Let's talk about Dorothy Morrison, mm-hmm. who, you write, somehow embodied all the hopes and challenges of the women I met. So tell me Dorothy's story. Well, just a little context. I was uh, spent time in Austin, Texas, where Dorothy Morrison lives, and I uh, interviewed about 30 women who were a part of a wonderful program called the Happy Kitchen, which is operated by the Sustainable Food Center in Austin. And the purpose of the Happy Kitchen is to provide people who really don't know how to cook and who are not eating healthfully with the information and the skills they need to to do both. And I was so impressed by everybody I met, and I was so impressed with their stories about how, you know, because of overweight or early stages of diabetes, or seeing their children overweight, or even seeing their parents obese and now, you know, diabetic, how they said, oh my God, you know, this is this could be my fate. How do I get some control over my life? Well, it started in the kitchen, literally started in the kitchen where they got control over their lives. And Dorothy Morrison is a African-American woman who, in a stereotypical fashion, has several children. She was overweight herself, didn't have a job, and she was a single mother and was really facing and lived in a housing project of, of Austin. She got involved with the Happy Kitchen, and she learned how to cook, and she learned how to shop. And she was able to interest her children in eating fresh fruits and vegetables. And her children started to lose weight, and she started to lose weight. And she developed more confidence in herself as a result of this experience of actually being able to prepare healthy meals for herself and her family. And she extended that interest in herself and her family into her own community, where she became more active in doing volunteer work and and for nonprofit program serving, uh, for instance, teenagers. Some of the other smart cooking mamas I talked to were decided they wanted to become teachers themselves in the Happy Kitchen program. And it's, the success of that program is based on the fact that it's a peer-to-peer kind of 
teaching effort. It's uh, you know, people from the community, often people of color, teaching others that you know, how to do these things. So it's you know, I learn, and I'm going to share what I know with those who you know I want to try to help. Also, that was the beauty of the program, and the impact I experienced with many of these women was really quite astounding. Now let's go to beautiful Boulder, Colorado, mm. where you find taking this level of getting control of your life to a different level, where you've got citizens now standing up for protecting some public lands against the planting of GMO sugar beets. Right. Describe that process. Well, I mean, Boulder is unique in many respects, but one thing that was unique is that they actually had the wisdom to acquire 26,000 acres of farm and ranch land and in their county. So this was public land, and they turned around and they leased it to farmers and ranchers, which made sense. Well, at one point, about two years ago, a group of farmers came to them and said, or asked permission to grow genetically modified sugar beets. So use genetically modified sugar beet seed on this land. Well, since it was public land, uh, fortunately, they had to ask for permission, and they had to go before the Boulder Food Policy Council. And they also had to go before the Boulder County Commission. And it was quite a scene. It was a, a big hearing was held. 150 people showed up. It got quite raucous, rowdy, and they needed secure a security guard to actually take some people away uh, who were who were getting a little too agitated. And so it was a it was very but it was very much of a public hearing and a public debate and process, which is in distinct contrast to just about everything else that goes on with respect to our food system. Genetically modified food has come along with very little public input, very little public debate. Many other aspects of our industrial food system, from factory farms to the use of antibiotics, has come in under the radar screen of regulators, of public health concerns, and is causing a great deal of harm across the United States, and partly because we citizens have not had the opportunity to weigh in and become informed and to actually uh, be a part of that decision-making process. In Boulder, the long story short is they rejected the request to use genetically modified sugar beets. And the footnote on that was that very shortly after that decision was made locally, a federal district court judge in California had ruled that the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture had uh, approved genetically modified sugar beet seeds without without the correct process. They had uh, basically violated their own uh, permitting procedures. And so, therefore, genetically modified sugar beet seeds were not allowed. And even more recently, they have another federal court judge ordered the destruction of 250 acres of crops that were designed to produce seeds for, for, for genetically modified sugar beets. So in a way, the work of the Boulder County Food Policy Council was validated by these two judicial orders. But again, we see that the the industry is doing everything it can to push itself ahead against the public interest and without public participation in a thorough public process. Well, and I think that what the Boulder story tells, too, is it validates the power of assembly, 
of bringing people mm-hmm. together. You mentioned in one of the interviews online, uh, and I have to tell our listeners that I, I really, we only have, of course, a short amount of time together, and there's so much rich information here. So if you want to learn more, please go to www.markwinnie.com. That's Mark. M-A-R-K-W-I-N-N-E. And there are little clips of interviews with you and talks that you give that people can, can listen to hear more of. But you talk about the power of using the kitchen as a place to start having the conversations. And it grows. We become connected to our food. And then before we know it, we've got a little movement forming. And then we go and we speak to city councils. And that folds nicely into your work with food policy councils. And I want to make sure... We have a few minutes left. I want to give you a chance to talk about the power of those. Well, I have my, like every other uh, food writer, <laughs> I have my mantra, and my mantra is to get your hands in the soil, your vegetables on the chopping block, and your voices down at City Hall. I think, in, in a way, the, the first two you know, physically connect you to your food. They build your own confidence. They build your own competency with respect to food. And the more you do actively engage uh, both in growing and preparing your own food, the more conscious you become of how it's produced, where it's produced, what what the whole system is. You just start asking questions. You start reading. You start talking with others. It's it's just a very natural process. And the more we can do that, I just believe the better off we're going to be. But that third element, getting your voice down at City Hall, is, is perhaps not as intuitive. It requires a slightly different action and perhaps a different set of skills. And I do think that we have this opportunity, like now, like we've never had before, to speak up on behalf of good public policies that are going to address the the problems of the industrial food system, as well as give us more opportunities to promote an alternative food system that's uh, sustainable and just. I've been in, I've been very much involved in the Food Policy Council movement over the last uh, 15 years, having started one in Hartford, Connecticut, and then the first state Food Policy Council was in Connecticut itself in, in uh, 1998. And I have come to respect the, the power of public participation in the process of uh, setting public policy. I know that's way too many P's in one sentence, but uh, it is a way that we can you know, engage, and the people who engage in that process tend to come out of that earlier experience of being more aware themselves about food production and food preparation. So there, it's a it's an interrelated set of skills that we all need to sort of practice. You know, it's all about practicing. It's all I've been gardening myself for 35 years, and every year I learn something new and I apply that. And I do the same in the kitchen, and uh, I am trying to do the same thing when it comes to the policy arena. Mark, unfortunately, we're out of time. You've given us a lot of food for thought. I'd like to thank Mark Winnie for joining us. He is the author of two terrific books. The first, Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty, Ties Food Directly to Social Justice. The second, Food Rebels, Guerrilla Gardeners, and Smart Cooking Mamas, helps us reclaim our connection to our food, health, land, and government. I want to thank Mark for being with us today and thank our listeners for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.